God in unexpected places. This is the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Here's Jason Elam. Hey everyone, this is Jason. Before we get into the episode this week, I just wanted to invite you to join the Messy Conversations group on Facebook. You know, I've always wanted a place where we can all engage together with the ideas and topics raised on the podcast. So we've started Messy Conversations as a place for the Messy Spirituality podcast community to further engage with those topics, to engage in conversations about deconstruction, reconstruction, and everything in between. For the privacy and safety of everybody involved, it's a closed group. Healthy, respectful debate is, of course, encouraged, but any name-calling, finger-pointing, accusatory, or toxic conversation gets folks bounced from the group. Hopefully, that won't ever be an issue. We really just wanted a place where you can come and tell us what's on your mind as a result of the conversations that we have here on the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can go to facebook.com slash groups slash messy conversations with an S, it's plural, Messy Conversations, to join the conversation, and I hope to see you there. Dr. Thomas J. Ord is a theologian, philosopher, and scholar of multidisciplinary studies. Ord is an award-winning author, and he has written or edited more than 20 books, including The Uncontrolling Love of God and his latest, God Can't. A 12-time faculty award-winning professor, Ord teaches in institutions around the globe. He's a gifted speaker, known for his contributions to research on love, open and relational theology, science and religion, and the implications of freedom and relationships for transformation. Dr. Ord, thanks so much for joining me here on the Messy Spirituality Podcast. It's my pleasure to have this conversation with you. Uh, It's really an honor for me. Your book, The Uncontrolling Love of God, had a deep impact on my theology personally. And uh, so I've been ruminating on that for a couple of years, and I appreciate this opportunity to talk to you. Excellent. Well, that particular book was written more in an academic kind of framework. And this newer book that you mentioned in your intro, God Can't, is a much more accessible approach to the big questions that you encountered in uh, the book, The Uncontrolling Love of God. Wonderful. Before we get into the books today, will you tell us some of your uh, spiritual backstory? Were you raised in the faith? Yeah, you know, I, I like to think I had a very positive upbringing. You know, no no parent is perfect. My parents weren't perfect, but they were generally loving parents. I grew up in a small community, a, a rural area in eastern Washington state. I went to church, you know, three times a week at least. I gave my life to Jesus many times when I was younger. And uh, I was a person who took belief in God and living out the Christian faith very seriously then, I still do now. But I became an evangelist, a young evangelist, doing a lot of witnessing. I was a part of Campus Crusade for Christ. I was very into healing for a while, uh, following uh, the advice and readings and wisdom of John Wimber and other healing evangelists. And then uh, when I went to college, I, near the end of my college career, kind of came to a crisis of faith. Well, not kind of, I really did. I was in a course that introduced me for the first time to some ideas in the writings of really smart atheists, agnostics, and those of other religious traditions. And those ideas were so strong, uh, they, I couldn't handle them well. In fact, for the sake of intellectual honesty, I gave up belief in God for a while. I remember picking up my fiancé, who's now my wife, 
and her getting into the car and me turning to her and saying, you know, I just can't believe in God anymore. After a, a period of being in atheism, I returned to faith gradually as I continued to work with the big questions. And it was really two big issues that kind of brought me back to thinking that it was plausible that there is a God. One was this search for meaning that I had and my sense that there wasn't any ultimate meaning if there wasn't some kind of ground for ultimate meaning. And that ground uh, most people call God. And then the second one is I had these deep intuitions that I ought to be a loving person and that uh, other people ought to be loving. And I couldn't make good sense of those intuitions if there wasn't a source for them, uh, a source that, again, we call God. And so uh, working from those two kind of basic uh, beliefs, I began to craft together a kind of theology that I think is faithful to the biblical witness, but strike some people as unusual and uncommon. I'm hearing more and more from people who go through that atheistic or agnostic phase. What good came out of that time for you, and how long was it? Uh, it wasn't that long. It was less than a year. I think one of the lasting good things that came from it is that I am much more humble than I used to be. <laughs> you know, I kind of thought I had all the answers. I thought I had an inerrant Bible that gave me all the answers. And all I needed to do was give those certain and sure answers to other people. And, you know, everything would work out dandy. Or at least I would be, I would be faithful to the call that God had given me to spread the gospel. But during that time, I began to realize I didn't have it all figured out. I couldn't be certain of things, not even certain that there was a God. And even today, I'm not certain there's a God. I think there's good reasons to believe in God, and I'm living my life as if there is a God of love, but I'm not absolutely certain. And so one of the positive outcomes of going through that stage of atheism, agnosticism, is that I realized the importance of humility in my life. Did that period change your sense of calling? You mentioned the calling to be an evangelist and to, and to share your faith and witness. I know that was a big part of my early ministry as well. Uh, did, did that atheistic period change your belief that God wanted that from you? Not really, surprisingly. I mean, I ended up just at the end of that, going into uh, ministry, full-time youth ministry for several years and ended up being a minister for 10 years in uh, churches. And I still think of myself as kind of an evangelist. It just it takes such a radically different form. And I'm so much more humble and I have a different view of God and the afterlife, all that sort of stuff. But now I guess I kind of think of myself as an evangelist of love. That is not only preaching a God of love and that we ought to be loving people, but trying to do evangelism in a loving kind of way. And that's a little different than the way I, I tried to do it before this change of, of mind. Were you exposed to the idea that God's love restrained God from taking control in many ways from, through someone else? Or is that just something you came to on your own? You know, I really came to it on my own in the, sen in the very precise language that I use. 
But I had long been attracted to the idea that, you know, we had free will and that we could use our free will wrongly and that God didn't want us to use our free will wrongly, wanted to use it correctly. And so dealing with questions of pain and suffering and evil, you know, I was like many people who sort of threw in the free will defense as at least partial answer to that question. And then I encountered a, uh, a realm of thinking called process theology that made some really radical claims about God's power, that God was limited. And uh, this, in one sense, was very helpful, but in another sense, it was threatening because, uh, you know, I, I wanted to continue to believe that God was powerful. And the way that the process God was at least sometimes described it sounded kind of like God was a wimp kind of on the sidelines. And uh, I, I didn't feel satisfied with that particular view of God. So I kept searching for a way to articulate God's power in the light of God's love. So how would you do that today? If you were explaining the uncontrolling love of God or the thesis behind God can't, how, how would you do that today on the street? I would say that God loves everyone and everything all the time. And this love is inherently self-giving and others empowering. And because this love is self-giving and others empowering, and because it's God's very nature to love, God must always self-give and others empower, not just humans, not even just animals, but even to the smallest levels of existence. And because God does that, God simply can't control anyone or anything. This love is self-giving and others empowering and therefore inherently uncontrolling. All right. And so when, when I hear those words from the title of your most recent book, God Can't, I have to admit that I've got this little religious alarm that goes off in my head. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's kind of a heresy <laughs> alert that's <laughs> uh, just so ingrained in me because the churches that I was raised in, the mantra was God is in control. And for so many of us, it was reassuring to believe that while life may be chaotic and that God... Uh, seemed distant at times, he actually had all of our circumstances well in hand and was orchestrating even the challenges for our good. Now, I would imagine that just that title of your book would evoke significant pushback from people with a similar upbringing to my own. How do you respond to that? <laughs> yeah, it does uh, Yeah, create some alarm bells in the minds of some people. And some people think it's sort of a, a marketing gimmick, but it's not. I actually believe that God can't do things. And when I begin to point out to those people that I have the Bible on my side, they are especially surprised when I point out that the writer of Hebrews says God can't tell a lie. The writer of James says God can't be tempted. The psalmist says God can't grow tired. And my favorite passage is the one in which the Apostle Paul is writing Timothy. And he says, uh, when we are faithless, God remains faithful because God cannot deny himself. So that idea that God can't go against God's own nature is at the heart of my proposal of saying that because God is a loving God and God always loves, God must love 
And because we should think of love as being uncontrolling, God simply can't control others. Then I like to point out the fact that the vast majority of Christian theologians in Christian history have said that God simply can't do things. Almost every one of them said God can't do that which is illogical. God can't make a married bachelor. God can't make two plus two equal 397. Then there is a a significant portion in the Christian tradition who said that God can't uh, contradict God's own nature. So they would say things like, you know, God necessarily exists. That's God's nature to do so. Therefore, God simply can't decide, you know what, this existing thing is kind of getting tiring. I'm going to stop existing. Or they would say, you know, God necessarily is present to all creation And so God can't one day saying, you know, being in Connecticut just isn't any fun anymore. I'm not going to be in Connecticut from here on out. So there's certain things God simply can't do because to do them would be going against who God is. And I'm claiming that God is a God of love and this love is inherently uncontrolling. So God can't control anyone or anything. In your mind, is there a difference between saying God can't and saying God doesn't. There is. Most people who say God doesn't also say things like God won't, or God allows evil, or permits evil. And I'm making the stronger claim that God simply can't single-handedly stop evil or prevent evil. And that's a pretty big difference, because the first one, the idea that God doesn't, or more, more specifically, God won't, assumes, or at least seems to assume, that God has the kind of power to stop things single-handedly, but for whatever reason chooses not to. Maybe it's a part, this, you know, suffering is a part of some mysterious divine plan, or maybe God is angry and this is punishment, or maybe God is saying, you know, you just haven't worked hard enough, you haven't prayed hard enough for me to do something. All those kinds of views of God I find to undermine the idea that God's love is perfect, steadfast, universal. In fact, instead of being so so abstract, let me read a couple of letters that I have received from some readers of this book, God Can't, because I think these letters uh, illustrate well what's at stake between saying God can't stop evil and God allows or permits or won't stop evil. So here's one that I think does a really nice job of this. This uh, woman writes this. So I'll tell you a bit about my story. I'm a survivor of sexual abuse, a lot and for a long time by my brother. In the midst of the worst years of my life, I had a very vivid dream of God walking over to my bed as I was being raped. He simply reached out, held my hand, and cried. For a few short days, I was elated. God hadn't left me after all. Then came the anger. Anger that God was there, and instead of stopping it, He simply held my hand and watched. For a long time, years, I was angry about that. I prayed for a breakthrough, but I never got it, so I buried it. 
So now, reading through your book, praying and contemplating, I can see more clearly what may have been happening. God could not stop my brother because God gives free will. How would God have stopped him? The reality is that God couldn't, not that he didn't. And for me, this is a complete game changer. Or this second letter from a guy who writes, My three-year-old son died from a particularly difficult form of childhood cancer. I can no longer hold to that notion that, quote, God is in control. What loving parent would choose to stand by while their child walked out in the middle of traffic, if that parent could stop the child? I know of none. When it comes to God, there has to be more to it than God simply choosing to allow these things to happen. Saying God can't single-handedly stop cancer is a better way to think. And I could go on and on. But hopefully those particular stories illustrate why, at least in the minds of many people who are suffering, who have been harmed, who have been hurt, it's so much better to think that God couldn't have stopped it than to say that God allowed their horrific suffering. Wow, those are powerful letters, and I'm really glad that you shared those with us. I'm really glad that the readers found your book to help them unpack some of the things they were feeling about those experiences that obviously are very, very painful. You know, one of the comforting things about faith in God for me throughout most of my life was confidence in the all-powerful, almighty, that he could step in and stop those terrible things from happening to us. Now, obviously, that's not always been my personal experience, but I always explain that away with, well, I don't, I don't have all the knowledge. And one day, by and by, we'll understand better. What do you say to someone who says, well, this, this belief that God is limited diminishes God in some way? Yeah, I think that's a common first reaction to a lot of people. And a lot of people have given the kind of answers or justification for evil that you've just given. You know, that this is a part of God's plan. We don't understand it. or There's some purpose to this that we don't see. When people say this diminishes their view of God, I get that because it does sound like a weaker, uh, smaller, or more limited God than what they previously imagined. I personally don't think it's a limited God. I still think that God is almighty in uh, particular ways of understanding that. But it isn't a God who does or even could control. And so initially, that will sound uh, odd, sound like God's a weakling. But to those people, I also say, um, look, if you're going to answer the big question, the number one reason that atheists say they can't believe in God, and I suspect the number one reason why those of us who do believe in God ask these questions, you're going to have to rethink what you think God can do. And I'm proposing a way that says the best way to rethink it is to begin with a God of love and say that it's love that constrains or shapes or limits God's power. And if we do that, it might not always feel comforting in the usual sense of knowing that God could have stopped it or might have stopped it, but it's a comfort to those of us, and this includes just about everybody, who have been harmed unjustly and don't have a good explanation for it other than some sort of 
appeal to mystery. What are the ramifications of the uncontrolling love of God for each of us individually and for humanity as a whole? How does the uncontrolling love of God play out in our lives? I don't think this podcast is long enough for me to spell them all out. (laughs) But let me uh, pick out a few of them, all right? One of the implications is that when we go through particularly rough times, whether these are caused by, we might say, natural causes, you know, maybe someone's got leukemia or they've been a victim of some natural disaster, or we go through problems because of what other people have done to us. Uh, maybe we're a victim of sexual assault, like the uh, the previous illustration I mentioned, or maybe we've been harmed in other ways. We don't have to look at those situations and think, well, God must not care about me. God could have stopped it, but chose not to. Or we don't have to think, oh, this must be God punishing us for some past sin. Or we don't have to think, you know, God's love must be so totally different from our love that we just can't understand it. It's a mystery. In this way of thinking, we can look at the crappy things that happen to us and to others in our lives and say, you know what? God is loving. And that can be extremely helpful. Let me let me get super vulnerable for a moment, all right? About four years ago, I was laid off from my job. And I believe, and I'm not the only one, the vast majority of people who were part of the, uh, the uh, whole experience believe that my being let go from my job was extremely unjust. It was one of those things that was in the papers, not only locally, but nationally. If I had a view of God that said that God could have prevented it single-handedly, then I would start to question whether or not God is steadfastly loving, (laughs) that God is consistently loving, because I can't imagine a loving God not stepping in and fixing that problem and not only stopping my pain, but the pain of my family, my colleagues, my friends, and even many in the community. So having this view of God was really helpful for me. I had it actually before I went through this experience, but having it really helped me to endure the kind of suffering that I had to endure while simultaneously believing that God really does exist and God really does love me. I remember as a young evangelist seeing incredible miracles. I I remember an old man who'd been told he'd never walk again, getting out of his wheelchair and walking across the the platform. I remember a, a young girl who's who had been blind uh, receiving her sight in a healing line while 600 people who needed a doctor but couldn't afford one were all there for their own healing. But this this young girl got her sight back in that healing line. But then years later, my four-year-old niece uh, had a uh, kind of a blood vessel rupture in her brain and she lied in the hospital for days uh, in a coma before she finally died. I prayed for her with all the same fervency that I had prayed for those other folks who got their healing, and she didn't receive hers. Now, I know one of the claims that are made against your book, God Can't, is that you're rejecting miracles. I don't feel like you actually are at all. I think you do leave room for miracles. Why do you think sometimes we see them and sometimes we don't? That's a fantastic question. And let me just uh, agree with you. I not only leave room for miracles, I strongly believe in miracles. But what my proposal allows for is 
the legitimacy of some miracles, but also an explanation for why many people don't experience the miracles they're praying for. I have prayed for many, many people in my lifetime, oftentimes praying for those who are hurting, those who have diseases, those who are crippled, those who are blind. And if I were to take every instance and take a, a, a record of how those people responded to the prayers, a very small percentage were actually healed. My success rate for, for prayers for healing is pretty small. <laughs> so what do we do with that? There have been other times in which healing has occurred. Do I just say, well, that's just the placebo effect, or it's just the body's way of healing itself, or should we give all the credit to modern medicine or whatever? I think there's a middle way, which says that God always, in all circumstances, is working to heal. But God's healing action requires some kind of cooperation, either conscious cooperation from humans or cooperation at the cellular level or the organs or in the environment or the conditions of creation that aren't capable of cooperating. We call those inanimate conditions. They have to be aligned or conducive to the kind of miracle that God wants to do. So if that's the case, every time miracles do occur, we can praise God, believing that God is the source of those miracles, and also believing that either the cooperation was there or the conditions of creation were aligned. But all the times in which you and I have not seen the miracles we're praying for, all our miracles that have, quote, been unanswered, those cannot, those, we don't have to blame God for not fixing things single-handedly, because my proposal says God can't fix it single-handedly. Instead, we can blame the conditions of creation. We can blame lack of cooperation. Now, Having said that, I want to be quick to add one important matter, and that is my proposal doesn't blame the victim for failing to be healed. In other words, the vast majority of time, people who are praying in faith, asking God to heal themselves or to heal others, are praying with full faith. And it's not like God is sitting back saying, you know, you've only got... 37% of the faith that you need for me to do something. No, I don't blame the victim. What I do blame is the victim's bodies or other conditions in the environment or the cells and organs, etc. Those have to be aligned or cooperating for the miracles to occur that God wants to occur. This is a profoundly relational approach to thinking about God's action, not only in our lives, but throughout all creation. How has this idea that God is uncontrolling changed your personal spiritual practice and your personal relationships? Well, it's altered my prayer life over the years. You know, like most people, I used to say prayers that kind of assume that at least in some cases, God could single-handedly fix things. I was never really comfortable with those prayers, if I was totally honest, because, again, my prayers were often not answered. And they also seemed to kind of presuppose that this God who allegedly could single-handedly fix stuff wasn't going to unless we begged and pleaded and cajoled and worked hard enough and had enough faith and prayed enough times. And that just did not fit with my view of a loving God. 
suppose my youngest daughter is out swimming in a lake and I see that she starts to drown, but she doesn't yell out for help because her head is underwater. Would I say to myself, you know, she hasn't asked me for help here. I'm not going to step in unless she asks. No, I would jump in and go save her if I was able to do so. That's what love demands. And yet we've had this view of God, a God who could single-handedly fix things, who for some strange reason has his arms crossed waiting for us to pray long enough and hard enough. And that just makes no sense to me if we really think God is loving. But in my proposal, I think our prayers really have an impact upon God. I believe in a relational God who is really affected by what we do. So our prayers really matter. But our prayers can't somehow make God single-handedly fix things. They can open up new possibilities, new avenues for opportunity for God to work in the world. Because I believe we live in a relational world as well. And so my prayers not only influence God, but they influence others in the world. And so in my way of thinking, my prayers can make a difference but they aren't some kind of guarantee of particular outcome that somehow make God able to strong arm others or creation. Has this idea that God's love isn't controlling changed you as a husband or father? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think I was already figuring out some of this stuff as a husband and father before I had a really uh, sophisticated notion of the uncontrolling love of God. But Yeah, early on in my relationships, I realized that any attempts to manipulate and control others are going to ultimately fail. They may occasionally in the short term have some positive outcomes, but the long-term negative outcomes far outweigh any advantage. And if I'm using the word control in a really technical sense, which philosophers would call a sufficient cause, which means to single-handedly do things— it's never the case that I could control people anyway. Um, they always had their free will. They always had their own actions and causes. In fact, I remember when I was living in Southern California uh, one morning, um, my middle daughter, when she was in the midst of her terrible twos, she woke up and my, my wife had left the house, as she often did before I did during that time in our lives. And if my daughter uh, thought that my wife hadn't kissed her goodbye, she would jump out of her bed, run down the hall, and throw a temper tantrum at the front door after my wife left. She she wasn't big enough to open the door, but she would just go nuts, you know, kicking and screaming and uh, hitting. And and I tried all kinds of disciplinary responses that were ineffective. <laughs> and uh, I remember one morning she went down and did her temper tantrum thing and and what I did, what I'm about ready to tell you I did, I'm not advocate, advocating as good parenting, but I'm describing what happened. I jumped up. I ran down the hall. I picked her up off the ground. I looked in her face and shook my finger. I said, you will not throw a temper tantrum. And I marched her down. I put her in her bed. And she's still flailing her arms, kicking and streaming. So I take my legs and I put it on her little legs so that they weren't kicking. I take one arm and put around her two little arms so she's not hitting. I take my other hand. I put it over her mouth so she's not screaming in my face. And at that moment... This thought ran through my mind. Not even I can control a two-year-old. How can God control complex creatures like you and me? 
Wow. So in other words, I realized that I had to think about parenting styles that were influential and yet not manipulative. Mm, I love that. I'm, uh, obviously, this has had far-reaching ramifications in your life, and and it has in mine as well, since I read uh, The Uncontrolling Love of God. God Can't is such a fantastic, I, I don't, I guess a reader-friendly version of, of uh, what The Uncontrolling Love of God seemed more academic. Yeah, that's right. There's some other new ideas in God Can't, but the primary purpose was to take the big idea of the uncontrolling love of God and then make it more accessible. Well, it definitely is. And it's very reader friendly and it communicates the ideas very clearly. And clarity is something that we're desperately lacking. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. But how far does the non-coercive love of God reach? How does this belief inform your understanding of heaven, hell, and the afterlife? Hmm. Let me begin by being honest that when I first started going down this road, I thought it had such great positive possibilities for answering some of my biggest questions, but I was really worried about the afterlife question, the the eschatology question. If God can't control us, anyone or anything, now, then how in the world do we understand the afterlife in a way that makes real sense. So uh, over time, I developed a view that I've come to call the relentless love eschatology or the relentless love view. And to kind of contrast it or to describe it, let me contrast it with three other views of the afterlife. So the very common view or the popular view is the traditional heaven and hell view, that some people get to spend eternity in eternal bliss. Other people have to spend eternity in eternal conscious torment in hell. This particular idea I do not think is strongly supported by the Bible, but it has come to be very common in not only Christians, but others as well. I don't believe that view. I don't believe it not only on biblical grounds, but I don't think it matches the idea that God is always loving, steadfastly loving. I don't think the punishment of eternal conscious torment fits the crime of, you know, 80 years of sin. And so it's just not fair and loving. Now, some people respond to that with a second view that's called universalism, and I'm going to call it classical universalism because there are many different forms of this. But the classical universalist says God doesn't send anybody to hell, says, you know, ollie, ollie, income free, and everybody goes to heaven to enjoy eternal bliss, even those who don't want to be in heaven, even those who don't want to have a relationship with God. In other words, this God must have the kind of controlling power to override the freedom of anyone. And this not only, you know, runs in opposition to what we've been talking about in terms of the problem of evil here in our lives, that if this God had this kind of power, God ought to prevent the evil single-handedly. It also, I think, makes our lives and our choices ultimately insignificant. That is, um, it says that no matter what we do, good or bad on earth, we're all going to end up in heaven. And that, I think, really demotivates us to love self-sacrificially here. You know, take, take climate change as a good example. 
Right now, there's overwhelming evidence that our planet is getting warmer, and it's in large part due to what humans do. And therefore, we ought to self-sacrifice in, in, in order for the climate change to be slowed or changed. Now, it's not fun to self-sacrifice in the ways that we're being told to self-sacrifice. Well, if we're all going to heaven in the end, then what's the real incentive to go through a little, you know, pain and discomfort now? Why not just, you know, eat, drink, and be merry because we're going to just keep doing that in the afterlife? Um, there are other reasons why this classical universalism has not made a lot of sense to me. It's better than the idea that God sends some people to hell for eternity, but it presupposes a view of God's power that I think is not helpful. Now, this third view is kind of gaining momentum, especially in evangelical circles, and it's called the annihilation view. It says that God either passively decides not to resurrect the unrighteous or resurrects everybody and then after judgment kills off the unrighteous. Either way, the unrighteous don't have to spend eternity in hell, but they are annihilated. They're completely done away with. This sounds better than, you know, the idea of God sending people to hell for eternity. But in my view, it presents a vision of a God whose love simply is not, as the Bible says, steadfast, everlasting. This is a God who gives up on some people. This is a God who says, you know, Jason, he has sinned so much in this life and he's not worth giving another shot to. I'm going to give up on him. I just don't think that's a good picture of God. So my view says this, God always invites everyone and all things that are capable of response, always invites us to love in this life and the next. So we continue to have opportunities to have a loving relationship with God in the next life after our bodies die. If we choose not to cooperate with love, well, there are natural negative consequences that come from failing to cooperate with love in this life and in the next. But God never gives up, never gives up. Let me repeat, never gives up. <laughs> we can go throughout eternity saying no to God if that's what we want to do. Now, my hope is, and I think it's a legitimate hope, is that all creation will be redeemed because all will finally say yes to this invitation to love. I don't have a guarantee that's got, that that's going to happen because that guarantee can only come through some kind of coercive divine act. But I think it's a very realistic hope that God's love can outlast our rebellion. That's a beautiful hope indeed. Let me ask you a personal question, if I might. And you certainly don't have to answer it if you don't want to. But uh, this is a very different view of God that I was raised with in the local church. And I have to admit, even radically different than the God that I preached about for most of my 20 years in local church ministry. I know that today, after being affected by your ideas and the ideas of many others, that God is truly love with no but. Um, it makes it very hard for me, and maybe this is ego, to sit in most church services today and hear the gospel that is so prevalent in America in 2019. Is it difficult for you to to sit under preaching in most local churches at this point? Yeah, it is difficult. Yeah, I hear a lot of things that I disagree with. 
what I try to do in those scenarios, I'm not always perfect at this, but what I try to do is I try to think, you know, Tom, there is a time in which you said these things, which you believe these things. I try to imagine the former fundamentalist Tom. <laughs> and I try to think, you know, I, I want to love that that person who thinks that way, just like other people love me. And maybe they'll end up changing their minds. Maybe they, wo- they won't. But I want to have grace and positive thoughts toward them, even though uh, they're saying things I don't like. Let me also say that, uh, well, let me give you a compliment. (laughs) It is hard for people in religious positions of authority, pastors, preachers, Sunday school teachers, whatever. It's really hard for them, after having stood up in a pulpit and pronounced the word of the Lord, to be humble enough to say, you know, maybe I didn't get the word of the Lord right in the past. I think a lot of folks are reluctant to embrace new ideas because doing so means they have to admit that they were not only wrong in the past, but they were wrong in a public way in the name of God sometimes. And it takes a really mature and humble person to be able to make that kind of change. So let me compliment you on that. Well, I appreciate that. It's definitely been a difficult journey. And I think there was a lot uh, within me that just said, you know what, you were so wrong about so many things for so long, you just don't have anything to say anymore. And I think I'm recovering from some of that and kind of finding my own voice or my own agency again. But uh, it's it's been a struggle. And that humility that you talked about earlier that's for real. When you realize you've been so wrong for so long, you think more carefully about about what you say in the future and and the ramifications of it if people believe it and apply it to their lives. I'm so grateful for your work. I'm really grateful for your books. I hope that everybody listening today has a copy of God Can't, and if they don't, I hope they'll get one. We're going to put a link to it in the show notes to make that as easy as possible. But I, I know that there are folks like on my social media feed who They've heard the title and they've heard some pushback about the book, but they've never read it for themselves. Maybe they let that pushback talk them out of it. What do you want to say to someone like that, that maybe has dismissed the ideas based on the pushback that it's received rather than reading the book for themselves? Well, I like to allow the voices of those who have been helped by these ideas and this book in particular to speak for me, because those voices are legion. (laughs) They're not only people who have been hurt and been harmed, like the stories I've already read, but there are numerous people, including numerous pastors, who send me letters saying that this has helped them conceptually or theoretically. In other words, they've had certain obstacles in their theology that they weren't able to overcome, and it's made them very uneasy, sometimes even feeling like they were fakes, you know, they were not being true to their congregations. And this way of thinking has helped them not only think more uh, coherently and consistently, but to feel like they can have integrity and authenticity. I got a note uh, last month from a pastor who who wrote and said, after reading God can't, I can now pray again. (laughs) I thought, yeah, that is, that's an outstanding testimony. So for those who are put off by the title, hey, I get it. But the title is biblical, even though you may not have realized it. It has a history in the Christian tradition that many people don't know. 
and it makes a really powerful, positive impact in the lives of many today. Dr. Ward, I know we're running out of time, and I want to be respectful of your time today. I, I really appreciate your willingness to come on and engage with me on these subjects. Uh, one thing that I've noticed on your social media feed, you seem to disagree very agreeably. How, how does that work? How, you, you don't seem to take personal offense to your detractors. And, and in the engagements that I've seen online, you, you're always very generous and and very uh, complimentary of, of the people who might have a very different idea from you. How do you disagree so agreeably? Something I've been working on, and I'm still not perfect at it, but I've been working on it for a while. Again, I try to remember my former self. And I try to ask myself, how would have I wanted to be treated if I had said these things? And then I try to be humble and know that I haven't gotten everything figured out. And third, I try to have the most charitable in interpretation I can of any comments. Sometimes that's really hard because sometimes I get pretty brutally attacked. So sometimes I just have to not respond at all because I can't think of a charitable way to do so. But I'm trying to avoid being unloving. My ultimate aim in life, Jason, is to be a person who lives a life of love. I want to do that in all dimensions of my life, including how I engage with social media. Well, I think you're doing a great job of that. One thing I've been so impressed with about your social media presence, at least, is you just refuse to demonize the other person in the conversation. And I'm really grateful for that example. I think we need so much more of that in the world that we live in today. So thank you for your example. Thanks for saying that, Jason. What's the best way for listeners to engage with you in your work online? Well, a common way is to go to my website, which is my full name, Thomas J J A Y Ord O O R D dot com. But you can find me on various social media things. I'm a person who does a lot of traveling and speaking. I speak in seminaries, colleges, churches, institutions, retreats, etc. cetera. Uh, so if uh, someone will go on my website and see my speaking schedule, if they want to come and talk in person at some place where I'm at, I always enjoy that. I think just in general, though, if folks want to send me an email, they can find my address fairly easily online. And I in love to engage with folks uh, who ask good questions. Dr. Ward, thank you so much for your time today. I'm so grateful to have had this opportunity to explore these ideas with you. Thanks for uh, the opportunity, Jason. I've really enjoyed the conversation too. You've been listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at MessySpirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.